You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I dropped an amazing episode with Dom Grimao of The Last Felony, Ion Dissonance, and Cryptopsy. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! All right, welcome back to the Stateside Podcast. Today, I have a very special guest and a friend and a colleague, if you will. Please welcome to the show, booking agent, and in her own words, music bitch, Bex Majors. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. I'm honored to be here. You're going to get a lot of hate for the music bitch comment. That's okay. Hey, you're the one that said it, so I can't be blamed. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard that line so many times before. Now, before we really get going, I need you to acknowledge my T-shirt. I am in love with the Dolly Parton T-shirt. Yes, please. And thank you. I just went to Dollywood. I want to go to Dollywood. Yeah, dude. We just went to Tennessee for nearly two weeks. We did Nashville and like music industry shit for a couple days. And then we met up with Ashley's side of her family out in the Smoky Mountains in Tennessee. We did Dollywood for a day. It was fucking awesome. What was the singularly best thing about Dollywood? I mean that it is an amusement park based around Dolly Parton. That is the best part. I've just got all sorts of visuals of the roller coasters and I'm going to have <laughs> yeah. to Google it. It's actually, it's oddly very normal amusement park, like full on roller coasters, full on like shopping centers. And I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a whole thing. It's like the Disneyland for the Southeast. She's a magical lady. She's a magical lady. They have a a replica replica of the cabin that she grew up in at the park that you can walk through. That's cool. Where That's, did she grow up? Uh, in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. Do you think they just picked up the cabin and relocated it? I mean, that's what I thought too, but apparently it's a replica. But it's tiny, Bex. She had, I think, 11 siblings, something like that. It was... It's basically one room. It's like a living room and a bedroom, but there's no doors. The parents slept in what was the living room and kitchen, and then the kids just shared one big room. Oh, hell no. I have four brothers, and sharing a whole house with them is enough. You had four brothers? I, I still have, have four brothers. Oh, my God. Are you So you're the only girl in the family? The only girl and the oldest. Wow. Oh, so they're all young ding-dong brothers of yours. Wow. Jeez Louise. I am one, uh, the only boy. I have three sisters and no brothers. Oh, it's the same situation, just in reverse. Just in reverse. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you ever want a brother, let me know. I've got some spare. (laughs) I somehow picked up a lot of male friends along the way. I think I was subconsciously looking for that. So, you know, playing in bands most of my life, I had like eight to ten best friends growing up. I had, I think, ten people... Um, as groomsmen in my wedding. Holy shit. And, and if you know me, like I know it sounds insane, but anyone that knows me, like not one of those people couldn't have been there. They were right. all 
equally, you couldn't have chosen. So I just have my dad as my best man. Oh, I have so much respect for that. Mm -hmm. That's so lovely. I'm very lucky. Bex, I just turned 40. Congratulations. I saw that on your Instagram. And because I'm such a good friend, I failed to text you or anything. Oh, it's okay. So belated happy birthday. 40 is a big one. And as somebody that's already reached that milestone, let me tell you, it's awesome oh well thank you it's and that's awesome. that is really good to hear i was really not great about getting older in the past i hated it i fucking hated it and i don't know in the past five years or so i've really switched my tune on that completely 180 and now it's not that i love getting older it's that i the audacity to complain about getting older is fucking insane like i know people who didn't make it to 30 you know, we have a, a close friend and colleague who I think she's in her 40s, maybe early to mid 40s, and has fought breast cancer two separate times. Like, I have nothing to complain about. So every year I'm still around, like, dude, well, you know, it's all good. No complaints. I hear and I that. I made it to 40. Yeah. My best friend and I, uh, turned 40 around about the same time. She's older than me. I just want to point that out. It's only two weeks, mm -hmm. but she is older than me. Yeah, that's how that works. And she told me that we call it the fuck it 40s. And I, since I switched my mindset to that, I'm like, yeah, no, I can do whatever the fuck I want because I'm 40 and I've proven my worth and I'm still here. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. Take the power back. Also, now I get to decide when I regress. So for this year, my birthday, I will be 39. There you go. <laughs> that's right. Just go backwards. Totally. So you hit 20 again and keep going. Yeah. Like, wh you already turned 40, Bix. We're doing this 10 years down. That doesn't make any sense. Let's hope we're both still around to be doing this in 10 years. Oh, God. I know. I know. It's wild. And the, the other thing about turning 40, and then we can move on, but I was always afraid that I would turn... My biggest fear was turning 40 and being alone and sad and stuck in a job that I fucking hated. You know? Like, so many people. She's poor. She's thumbs to herself. No, you have a great life, Bex. I, I've hung out with I you. I do. You have a beautiful life. I do. I'm kidding. I absolutely, and by the way, I'm one of the few people in this job that will tell you, I fucking love this job. I love this yeah. industry and I don't care what amount of shit it throws at me, at you, at everyone. It's a horrible, toxic community and I thrive in it. Absolutely. I, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. And I did a lot of things. Unlike a lot of the people that we know and work with, I didn't get out of high school and work in the music industry for the past 20 years. I, I tried a lot of stuff. I mean, I played in bands and I did that for a long time. But no, as far as like day jobs, I was a, a structural inspector. I worked at the biggest Intel campus in the world for eight years. I was a firefighter in EMT for three years. That's I've done a, a lot of job. shit. That was a real job. Yeah, I bartended at a music venue for a very long time, worked production there. I guess that's music industry related. But no, I mean, as far as managing and, and specifically managing producers, that happened later in life. And I had to have, that was my road to here. You know, some like Shapiro, he's been doing this. That's like the only thing he's ever done. This is it. He's been a booking agent from the time he was a kid a teenager. And for me, I have a totally different path to this thing. So I, I'm curious how yours started. For those who don't know, and those who are listening, how did you kind of get into this crazy fucking business that we're in? 
Uh, well, I didn't set out to be in this business. I wish I could have been one of the kids that knew what I wanted to do from day one. But um, when I was a really young child, what I most wanted to be was a Chinese acrobat. So you can imagine wow. the conversations about why that was not going to be a reality. What does that mean? I wanted to be Chinese and I wanted to be an acrobat. <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely, that's that's what that means. I, th I think uh, I'd spent too much time watching the Olympics as a toddler. That's such a little kid way of thinking, too. Totally. And then I wanted to be an actress, which was slightly sure. more grown up. And then I wanted to be a vet, which I think is what we all thought I was going to do. And then I decided to go to university and read neuroscience with a view to being a brain surgeon. So that's the path I was actually on. No way. Yeah. I'm actually a lot smarter than I look, sound, or appear. Um... <laughs> Not that much smarter because I didn't finish my degree, but a little bit smarter. But um, okay. while I was at university, I started writing for the um, music paper. I was always a huge music fan. My dad is the biggest music fan in the world and brought me up good. Props, dad. Thanks very much. So I was always at gigs, going to shows. I was basically looking for a way to get in for free because I had no money. And so right. I started working for the, the paper. That was short-lived. I'm terrible. I at the time, lacked the discipline to sit down and do any actual writing. But I did meet a lot of cool people and we stayed in touch. And I ended up going on tour with a band called Marah from Philadelphia. I named them only because Tim Bora might be the one person on earth that knows who they are. And this was like, you know, really pre-internet. So I was keeping their tour diaries. Anyway, to cut a long story short, I made some friends and I was living in Cardiff in Wales. And when those friends would come back into town and want to play shows, they started calling me. Not right. entirely sure why, but they did. So I started putting on shows. I had no clue what I was doing. Figured it out as I went along, which is what I think 95% of this music industry is. Absolutely. Um, so lots of little DIY shows didn't concern me that I was doing it for free. It didn't occur to me that there could be a better business model whereby I could pay myself. But I was extremely fair to the bands and gave them all of the money. Wow. So we did that. Is that more of like booking the shows or like a promoter? Promoting. Right. Promoting. I hired the venue, booked the bands, hoped to mm. God somebody would bring backline, that kind of thing. I would get up Is at three in, in the morning and, and fly poster the shit out of the city. And so in specifically in the city of Cardiff? Yes. Okay. Yes. Wow. I think I branched out once to Newport. Which is not a huge city. No. No. Very small. But you're not from Wales. No. Although I did have a Welsh accent. I lived there for so long. That is a weird accent. I love it. I was, I was about to do it, but I won't. I shall refrain. We, we almost did a, uh, a canal trip through Wales for my 40th birthday, and we're going to punt that down the road for about a year. Punt, we're, no we're pun probably... intended. Yeah, no pun intended, but we still might do it. And Wales looks like just the most beautiful, absurdly quaint country ever. It's stunning. If you need any yeah. tips or help, you let me know. Okay. Okay. Well, anyway. Okay. So you, so like a lot of people, you just kind of found yourself doing that. What do you think, what was the magnetic pull for people? Why do you think they called you? Like, why you? I'm a doer. It's as okay. simple as that. I'm not necessarily the most creative or the most entrepreneurial of people, um, but I'm an executor. You give me a task, it's going to get done. I'm one of those busy people that people just come and pile more and more on because they know it's going to happen. Is that something you 
were shown how to be that way or you just maybe you're the oldest sibling you had to wrangle four four brothers your whole life that's an interesting question i think i've always just been very headstrong and going to do my own thing and i've i've always very much approached everything from the mindset that somebody has to do it it may as well be me now whether that Mm. means you know there are three jobs and five thousand people applying well somebody's going to end up doing it so it may as well be me i'm not put off by those kind of challenges okay but maybe it has something to do with my upbringing. I'm not sure. I was certainly very independent from the word go. I mm. would use the word independent. I'm not sure what my mother would use. <laughs> no, I'd love to know. Hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I was putting on shows in Cardiff. Um, and I was doing that probably for a year or so. And then there was a venue there called The Barfly, sadly since defunct. But they were looking for somebody to run their street team. And they were also looking for a part-time assistant to the promoter there. So by word of mouth, it got back to me. So I I went in with a pretty bad attitude towards it because I thought they just wanted to see me so that they could try and steal my business effectively. Like I thought right. they were just trying to figure out what they could do to take the business back off me because I was doing pretty well at that point. And actually what they ended up doing is rolling the two jobs into one and bringing me on full time, which was amazing. Also, the only time I've ever been anybody's assistant And that only lasted for about four months. And the head promoter, I like to think I drove him out, but he kind of went, peace out, moving to London. He actually took a job being a promoter for a bigger chain of venues. (laughs) I see. Was this before college? I I dropped out of college to do this. When I got offered the full-time job, I was sort of, I think I'd pretty much dropped out before then. Um, So now you're you're in your 20s-ish at some point. I was 19. Oh, wow. Okay, so you also have been doing this for quite some time. I have been. Yeah, I was 19 and I turned 20 when they asked me to take over the venue full time, which was an interesting experience since I was half the age of anybody else that worked there. <laughs> it did not go down so well. No, it, it that can be that can be a secret power. But I would imagine as a woman as well, you, you just kind of have two strikes going at you the whole time you know you're you're young you're a woman there's not a ton of you doing this and you're you're just hoping for the best and trying your best so i commend you for doing it thank you i had to be pretty um pretty strong right off the bat it was definitely a baptism of fire for sure and i remember the first time i had to fire someone and it wasn't very pleasant but um man it got me some respect people fell into line a little bit after that yeah i bet But yeah, so I did that and through booking a venue, I got to know a lot of of agents because obviously I was buying bands from them. You know, I would go up to London periodically to see friends and meet people. And I I made it a rule with myself that every time I went to London, I would have to meet at least two agents that I did business Mm. with so I could put names and faces together. And I met this incredible woman called Emma Banks, who's one of the biggest, best, most amazing agents in the world. And she emailed me shortly after we'd met and said, have you ever thought about becoming an agent? There's a desk here with your name on it if you're willing to relocate to London. I had no desire to live in London, but I sure had a desire to work with Emma. So off I went and ended up working with Emma for close to 14 years. Um, Wow. Yeah. Little known fact, I helped set up the uh, office for CAA in London. That story is Mike and Emma set it up. The footnote is I was with them. Wow. And where are you from in the UK? I'm from a town called Taunton in Somerset, 
which is basically buttfuck nowhere. But Glastonbury Festival, that's what we're famous for. And where where in the directional, is that south? North, where, where is that? Southwest. Southwest. Okay, we've had this conversation. That's right. Southwest. Where is Muse from? They're from Exeter, which is about 20 minutes down the road from Taunton. Gotcha. Okay. So you're, were you, you're pretty close to the coast where you grew up. Pretty much. Well, when I was four, we moved down to Plymouth in Devon. So I grew up in, in Plymouth, which is a seaside port. We'll get back to the music stuff, but I like to kind of interject some humanity in these stories. What was it like growing up in the UK? Well, I didn't really have anything to compare it to at the time. Sure. I mean, I'm really glad that I grew up very rural. I'm a real outside country bumpkin type. So I think I had a really good upbringing in that regard. There were very few opportunities, so you did have to hustle. It's sad to look back on the number of classmates and schoolmates that didn't make it. And they didn't make it because the opportunities were not there. And a lot of people turned to drugs and alcohol. So I, you know, I'm forever grateful that I didn't take that path. But growing up in the UK is, is, it's a lesson in patience, I think. And repression. We're very good at repression. Yeah, you guys are. It's very interesting. I, you know, I have some family in Ireland and I've been to Scotland a few times. I've been in the UK a lot. And it's that is something I've noticed. There's kind of a stuff your feelings down very deep and stiff upper lip. That's very British. Mm-hmm. It's very Irish as well. And then you drink as much as you can on a Friday or a Saturday night and all the feelings bubble to a surface. And all before yeah. you know it, there's a big pub brawl going on. That's how but we like to deal fun. with things. Yeah. And I mean, the UK is so small. Um, for context... For those listening that may not know how small this area of the world is. Okay, so let's take Ireland, which is not a part of the UK other than Northern Ireland. But the entire island of Ireland, including Northern Ireland, is one third the size of the state of Oregon. Let your head just kind of process that. I'll say it again. Oregon, the state of Oregon, is three times the size of all of Ireland. The entire country. All of that folklore, all of that history, the music, the people, all of that is three times smaller than Oregon. That's wild. Isn't that crazy? So Americans don't really know how big this country truly is. That it'll take you uh, seven hours to drive across the state of Oregon. I mean, imagine doing that in the UK. You would get to a different country by then. Oh, I'd get in the car at breakfast and see Scotland by lunchtime. Yeah, exactly. I remember doing, I remember hopping on a train in London and then being in Edinburgh later that afternoon. I'm like, wow, this is a totally different thing. Yeah, it's drivable. You wouldn't want to drive the whole thing in one day, but you absolutely can. And I have. You absolutely can. So, okay. So then you go to London. What what was that like? Um, my next question for you kind of pairs with this. Going to a big, big city, going to a place where opportunities happen, how how important to you is networking in this industry of ours? And what would you what would you underline about networking to those that are just starting out, people that are listening? We have a lot of people that are listening that are just getting into this thing, whether as an agent, manager, producer. We have a lot of, obviously, audio production people that listen. But it's all applicable. It's all the same. How important is networking to you? It's so important. This is a business that's based on relationships. You need to know everybody that's in the room, outside the room, waiting to get in the room, running the room. 
the people that you meet early on in your career are going to be running the industry in 10, 15, 20 years. Everybody's got something to say. I would say, you know, some of the best advice I could give is when you start your network, keep up with your network. It's not you take their number and then you check in two years later when you need something from said person. It's not that. But also networking doesn't come easy to me. You know me. We've met before. I'm not the most garrulous and outgoing of people. I don't particularly socialize particularly well. I find it quite difficult to make small talk. I'm a little bit socially anxious. And I found that part of the career that I was forging at the time incredibly difficult. But I did it. I pushed through. You have to push through. And I think one of the things that dawned on me much later is that everybody suffers from imposter syndrome. Everybody is just winging it. We basically work in a betting industry. There's no reason why your bet isn't any better or worse than my bet. I don't really know which artist is going to break, nor do you. We can take an educated guess and hopefully as we get older and more seasoned in our careers, our guesses get more accurate. But that's really all it is. Everybody's just guessing at it. So never feel out of place. Don't feel like you haven't got anything to say. Just show up and be in the room and absorb every bit of information that you can. Dude, imposter syndrome. That is something that I really struggle with. I used to really struggle with it pretty bad. I'm getting better at it because I, I think that's that's it. That's what I finally started to realize a few years back was like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll give you a quick story. My, my father-in-law said something really beautiful to me. He's Cajun. He grew up in Louisiana. He's got a really thick Louisiana accent. And he said something to me when I was starting stateside, the company. And I, I was like, I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. Why am I, I'm in my 30s starting this. What, why, why am I doing this? I had a great job at Intel. Like, what am I doing? And, you know, who do I think I am? And he said, James, I'll tell you something. Uh, what is a company, James? And I go, what? He's like, what are they? It's just made up by people, right? I go, yeah, Don, that, that's right. And he goes, well, you're a person, aren't you? And I go, yes, Don, I am a person. He's like, that's it. You're just like everyone else. There's no difference. You, you are just, you have every right to be here as anyone else. And once I, you, it's one thing to like think that and to play with that mentality, but it's entirely different thing to actually wear it when you're in the room with these people that intimidate you. Absolutely. I started doing that in the past couple of years and it, it really made a huge difference because it, it permeates the room. People pick up on that. I have a right to be here. And anyone that big leagues me, I fucking remember it. <laughs> I mark it down and I go, okay, cool. I'll remember that. And we all know who these people are. And it fucking pisses me off every time it happens. But I don't let it stop me anymore. I think we talk a lot about, do you have a seat at the table? Have you earned this seat at the table? Is everybody represented with a seat at the table? Like, fuck that. Bring your own chair. Stand yeah. on it. You're in the room. You deserve yeah. to be there. I have this conversation a lot with some of my peers, some of whom I I sit back and watch them hustle. And I'm like, how did you get that person on the phone? And the answer always is, I called them. I called them. I asked. I'm like, oh, I could do that. And I do do that. But it took me a long time to realize that actually I am good enough. I've earned my stripes. I've proven myself. I'm damn good at what I do. And I'm a good human as well. You should want me at your table. I have good table manners. That's right. That's right. I may get in a food fight every once in a while, but 
Generally, I will behave myself. Don't anger me if there's cutlery, but otherwise I've got good table manners. You know, it's, it's just so true. Well, thank you for answering that because you mentioned going to London and I, I would imagine growing up in a rural area in already, I mean, I, I'm not saying UK is super isolated, but it's not, if it's not London and some of the bigger cities, there's maybe not a ton of opportunities, specifically in the music industry. So you go to London. What What is your experience in London? You know, let's face it, Britain has a long history in the music industry. Some of the most legendary acts come from that country, legendary music companies, studios, producers, etc. Is that still the case now? Is there a relevant place in the uk for music now um yeah are there are there is there shit happening there to you a hundred percent i mean i think when you think about all the big companies whether it's the labels or spotify or the management companies or the agencies that are all based primarily not exclusively but primarily in london and up until recently radio one they're now largely based out of manchester but you know there, there was this huge hub this community this creative spirit and I think that's still very much there. But I think, and I'm sure this is true, especially since COVID, I think that now that we have all this technology that allows us to work remotely, whether it's Zoom calls, whether it's, I don't know, just being able to work from home, I think that you shouldn't be hindered by the geography. Nothing will beat being in a room person to person in 3D real life, but we can come pretty close. And I think you look at like music distribution on Spotify or whatever, right? It's a game changer. It's even the playing field. And I think that that's true as well. You don't have to be in London to seek out those opportunities. But I do think, you know, it, it's easier because there's just a concentration of these like-minded people. Now, when we talk about networking, there's two kinds of networking. There's what we're doing right now over the internet on a Zoom call. There's telephone, email, whatever. But I have personally noticed a huge jump in progress for my business if I take the time to get in the, the same room physically with people. And nothing really makes up for that. Would you agree? I absolutely agree. In the same way that a telephone call can get so much more done than an email. Right. We're in the right. sales business, right? If I'm trying to sell my client to yours, if I'm trying to sell you a band to put on in your venue... Me sending you an email is not proactive. Me following up with a just bumping this up your email, that's not selling something, right? I need to be on the phone to you telling you this is why this band is the next big thing. Better yet, I need to drag you by the hand to an actual venue and watch my band and let them speak for themselves. Damn straight. Yeah. The buzzy conversation of the day is like chat GBT and AI what kind of impact is that going to have on business, specifically the music industry? And I mean, I, I don't know, because we're in 2023. I don't know what the next 20 to 100 years will be like, but it will obviously have an impact. But at the end of the day, this is a an art. And art is about humanity. Absolutely. No one wants to hear a fucking AI generated song. And if and if we do, I I fear for humanity. <laughs> you know, it's we're not in a great place because at the end of the day, people, I mean, you know this, post-COVID, your your business took off live music because people want real experiences. They want to go to a venue physically and watch human beings do something in front of them. 
And this is the beauty of live music. You cannot replicate it in any way whatsoever. Ever. It's a human connection. And we tried. We tried with streaming. You know, our business partners and owners of SGG, they did the streaming service for, for a minute. And I think that was a brilliant pivot during COVID. But no one is watching a, a live band streaming. It, you know, there's always exceptions. Every once in a while, sure. band will pull that off and whatever. But generally speaking, people still, they want to do what we've done for damn near all of human existence. They want to get in a room and watch people do something amazing. Yeah. It's like having a snack instead of being uh, satiated by a full meal, isn't it, really? Yeah, that's you, right. You know, streaming's great, and it filled, filled the void for a minute, and it was the best that we could do. And, and like you say, that was fantastic. And some of those streams that went out were really quite game-changing in a lot of ways. But that said, there's nothing going to beat the actual experience of standing shoulder to shoulder with somebody, getting covered in their sticky, warm beer, <laughs> making friends with the person slinging the t-shirts you know having a great old time even if you've got nothing in common with people in that room you've got the one thing in common is the band that you're there to see yes for those listening i should have said this up top and i'll probably include this in an intro um, at the start of the show but here's some artists that bex works with currently or has worked with and let me know who's current or not amanda palmer blackstone cherry um let's see dance gavin dance dead sarah She's nodding her head, yes. Dorothy, mm -hmm. Dresden Dolls, Eric Melvin from NoFX. Yep. How is that going, by the way? <laughs> is that is that a wild experience? Because there's still, NoFX is still in their goodbye phase of touring. Yes, they are. Let me tell you. So I work with Eric Melvin, which is quite a new relationship. Okay. God bless him. He is lovely. I've worked with Fat Mike a few times, and he is a total riot. Well, so I work with a band called Co-Defendants, which is Fat Mike's new project, and I would like this to be on record. Fat oh. Mike is not in the band. He wrote, he produced, he's not in the band. Now, I have okay. a lot of people that get very frustrated when Co-Defendants turn up to do a show and nobody knows where Fat Mike is. Oh, he's wow. not in the band, guys. Yikes. But because of that, I've ended up having to work like, quite closely with the NoFX camp. And I will tell you that Fat Mike sends an email. Shit happens. People move. Oh, fuck yeah. Oh, yeah, no. Don't get it twisted. He he comes across like some silly goose punk rock guy, and he is. But he's also... There's a reason he is as, as successful as he is. He's a world-class businessman. He is, and he works his fucking ass off. One of my producers, Ryan Lewis, did some recordings with him in San Francisco and a little bit in L.A., um, there was a musical that he's working on that apparently will come out one day called Home Street Home. And it's it's like, imagine Rent, but with like degenerate punk rock characters, like street punks and shit. I must and find anyway, myself a part in that. Yeah. And it, it, it was great. Like he, it was, you know, it's funny because he, he handles a lot of the shit himself. He's got a manager that I worked with a little bit, but no, it, at some point you will be doing emails directly with Fat Mike, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And I, I grew up loving No Effects. That was like me and my buddies skateboarding through the suburbs of Portland listening to No Effects. Anyway. I will tell you, though, working in the punk crowd has really been an exercise in patience. I bet. I'm used to a certain level of you say something, something happens. 
And I, mm-hmm. I, you know, I work with some clients that are incredibly professional and an absolute dream to work with. Hailstorm, I am looking at you. That was everyone, the next band everyone on the list, by should, the way. <laughs> should learn to be more Hailstorm. What a pleasure that band is. And then yeah. I start dealing in the punk world. And I'm like, no one Yikes. can fight their way out of a paper bag here. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's, it's almost like, uh, I don't know if you worked with Reggae X, but it's very similar. That sounds like a John Panel question. Yes, that's right. I, I've probably worked 10, not reggae, but more funk, 10 uh, George Clinton shows. Right. I don't think one of those shows he was on time or or got off stage when he was supposed to get off. Zero fucks given. Like two and a half hour sets, you know, 45 minutes late to starting. Pretty pretty interesting to see. Okay, so Hailstorm. Um, who else? Manchester Orchestra. That's a that's a big one. Probably my uh, oldest client at this point. Really? Yeah, I've worked with them since Andy Hull, the singer, was seventeen. Oh wow! Mm. So you've really watched them come up, watched them blossom. I feel like a very proud momager there. I really do. I mean, they're just such an incredible band. I'm so honored to be a part of that. I bet. I'm gonna circle. I have a question on that. Okay, let's get through a couple. Um, Palais Royale. Mm-hmm. You've worked with them a couple years now, right? Oh, it's a, a few years. A yeah. few years now. I think I think we started working together in 2018. Wow. Okay. So another band that you've watched kind of blossom and take off. I mean, those guys, they keep me young. They keep me current-ish. Are you still working with Seaway? Yes, but Seaway have been inactive for a little while. Yeah, I was wondering that. One of my guys, Alan Day, has produced a few of their stuff. They're pretty cool. Sky, so Sky Christie, I think that was the show I was supposed to go with you in LA and I bailed on you. Well, they were on at 10.30 on a Monday night, which is quite That's aggressive. That's what it was. And I had already, yeah, that was like a week solid of going out. She was like, I can't do it. You missed <laughs> out. It was fantastic. Yeah, they're pretty, pretty fucking cool. Um, well, th- that's a few for you. I mean, Jesus Christ. Are you still working with Hoobastank when they do stuff? Oh, yes. They are strangely big in Asia. We uh, that makes play sense. a lot of shows in Indonesia. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch. Dayseeker, uh, Nita Strauss, Corrosions of Conformity, Corrosion of Conformity. That's a old school fucking band. Wow. Okay, so I'm going to circle back to the question about Manchester and bands like that. It's something that I'm starting to learn the importance of, and I'm curious your take on this. You know, I'll be very candid. No one will disagree with me on this. As a manager, or as in your case, an agent, we all want big fish clients. There's, we're not hiding that. We all want the fucking huge, successful people that are going to make us tons of money and make us look fucking good, and that would be a dream. But there's something to be said about finding artists and and clients that you believe in that haven't quite taken off. And it probably means more watching that journey and watching that progression. Is there something there for you? Like, are, are you, do you find yourself wanting that journey more or do you just want the instant, I just want a huge band right now? I've never been about instant gratification whether it's about music or anything else, I'm not that person. I like to build things methodically. I like to build careers. I'm not yeah. here for the the money, the success, the fame, the glory. I'm not here for your single to go top 10 at radio. I'm like, great if it does, that's fantastic. Right. We can all take a bit of a shortcut. But I'm really proud of what I've built with bread and butter touring. Strategy, yeah. live work, good common sense, good people. 
you, the people you surround yourself with, whether it's agent, manager, label, A&R, whomever it is, those are the people that hold the key to your success. There's still a lot of luck involved. Sure. But if you don't have a good inner circle that know how to strategize, that keep things going and keep things moving in a forward direction, then you've kind of lost already. Unless you are that pop star that has a big blow up hit. And I'm not qualified to talk on pop music. I am not a pop agent. But having said that, I cut my teeth on bands like MGMT and LaRue and Claxons and The Rapture, all of whom had a modicum of success at radio you know, yeah. back when Indian Alternative was much more played on radio. So I've experienced a little bit how, um, you know, having a radio hit can drive a campaign and allow you to build your career a little bit bigger um, and a little bit quicker. But I think there's something to be said for the slower route, granted, but the yeah. more steady and build on it, build on it, build on it. Let's set the foundations right. Yeah, and in the end, this our career and everything else we wanted, we're doing in life is about a quality of life. There's no point in doing this if it's not fun along the way and we don't have a good family of friends and colleagues. I'll think about it and I'll be blown away about the amount of people I know, like yourself, you and Randy have become really good buds of mine. And it's because we took the time to get to know each other and hang out. And now... That is so much more interesting to me, that type of career and journey, than the quick success and, like you said, you know, a number one hit or, or whatever the fuck it is. That's great along the way, but man, would I, would I trade all of that for a fun journey along the way? I want to know my clients, right? I Absolutely. want to meet them when they're young. I want to go through their births, their marriages, their relationships their anniversaries. I want to do all of this with them. I want to be with them for their career. I yeah. want to be a part of helping make that happen. I don't want to work in an industry where I'll know somebody for 18 months and then the next big thing comes along. Yeah. That's not gratifying to me. Are there agents that do that? Absolutely. And, and do it brilliantly and all power to them. And I'm sure they live in much nicer houses than I do. But that's just different strokes for different folks, right? That's yeah. just not the way I'm wired. I want to really feel a part of it. I'm not in it for the business side of things. I'm in it for the love and the creativity. And not one is better than the other. I know plenty of people that are at this point in their careers that will say quite openly, I'm in this for the business side of it, the game of the business, not so much the love of the music. And that's absolutely fine. They reach the point in your career where you're running a company, running a label, running a management team, and you should be focused on bringing people into the business and people managing and being entrepreneurial. That's not about doing what's best for the hot new young client that you might have just signed. That's why you have the right people. It's, right. it's about who's the right fit for that artist. Absolutely. Okay. Well, how many how many companies have you worked with? Or, or yeah, I mean, is this something you can even do alone? Or do you want to do alone? <laughs> as an agent? Yeah, as an agent. Because I've often wondered that because you guys are all I say you guys, because I'm a partner with STG, all of the agents, it's like individual islands and mini companies within their own. Mm -hmm. You're all part of this collective thing, but you're all kind of doing your own thing in the way that you choose to do it. Is there something to be said about being part of something bigger than yourself? And is it needed? It's an interesting question. And I'm 
fortunate that I've done both. I've been at CAA, arguably the biggest entertainment company in the world. I've been at UTA and now I'm at STG. I was also at a company called Helter Skelter right at the beginning of my career, which was a small boutique agency also. And I think, honestly, what it really ultimately comes down to is how do you interact with people? How do you interface with your colleagues, whether there are five Mm. of them, whether there are 1,500 of them? What are you bringing to the table? What are you offering other people? What experience are you offering your colleagues? I think ultimately, in terms of your clients, you are the person that they interface with. So I'm very grateful that when I moved from CAA, I took all of my clients to UTA. When I moved from UTA to STG, all of my clients came with me because I'm their Mm. person, right? They don't care what three letters come after my name. I'm the one grafting and busting ass for them. But then if you want to have more of a collective experience... You can take whatever you want, the good parts or the bad, from any of the major agencies or from a boutique like STG, who are one of the best companies I've ever worked for, because everything's there. The resources are there. It's about how you choose to tap into them. Could you go it alone and be a lone wolf? Absolutely. I have a very good friend who does exactly that, and he's right out there by himself. And my God, that man is a hustler. And he's absolutely brilliant, but he doesn't need anything else. I personally can't get out of bed in the morning unless I've had a conversation with Randy, our colleague. Right, right. right. I talk to him. He's my work wife. We talk 20, 30 times a day. That's beautiful. And I'm I'm more like you as well. I could have easily done, or not easily, I could have arguably just done this by myself. I was doing it by myself. You know, you could argue I, I could potentially have made more money if I just stayed by myself. But in the end, back to our... The whole point of this is to have a fun life and to do something we enjoy doing with with rad people. Partnering with with a larger group outside of myself not just allowed me to do different things, but now I met you. I met other people and it's it's been beautiful, not just for the business, but for my own personal well-being. And I would I would recommend anyone out there that's starting whatever it is, you're becoming a cook. <laughs> You're, you're going to school, whatever it is you're doing, try to try to get outside yourself, network and build your own community. Just be kind. Be kind. Don't Just be, be kind asshole. and good things happen. Amen. It's fucking true, man. God, it's true. I know. I, there needs to be a, a heavier focus on that. The music industry can be so hustle focused. And it's fun. It's fun to do the fucking entourage fucking LA business thing. It's fun. But like at the end of the day, I really just want good people around me. I mean, I'm I'm all for a little bit of healthy competition, right? We sure. all want that hot band that sold out the troubadour, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. Great. So we go there and you're standing shoulder to shoulder with all your peers that work for competing agencies, and it's a bit of a one upmanship thing, right? Totally. It's the thrill of the chase cool that's fine but that's really where it should start and finish that's it like there's so many artists to go around so many nuances to this business and so many skill sets on offer that there's plenty of business to go around i don't need to eat off your plate please keep your hands out of my refrigerator that's right oh yeah And, and poaching is just about the worst fucking thing you can do for your career got no time for it you are immediately an asshole immediately a um, couple more questions for you here, Agent Bex. Speaking of being an agent, 
When should an artist look for an agent? What's the appropriate time for an artist to do that? When they can't do it themselves anymore. I think they really need to, you know, there's got to be a level that you reach yourself, right? If you try and get somebody to do what you can do yourself, you're throwing money away, basically. You're going to be giving 10% of your badly needed income to somebody that probably didn't do any more than you could have done, i.e. pick up the phone. Right. When you start having too many bits to juggle and you can't keep up with everything that's incoming, that's when you really need to expand your team, whether it's a manager or an agent um, or whomever else. Like, Don't give away the goods before you have to. Amen. That's what I always say. I mean, when when should a producer look for a manager? When you can't do it all yourself or or you don't want to. One of the two. You know, some producers easily could handle their own negotiations, invoicing and producer agreements and all that shit, but they just don't want to. <laughs> right. They just simply don't want to. They want to just focus on the creative side and be present with an artist and so yeah, I mean, I you know, we we definitely have a few clients that they are very capable of handling that side of stuff on their own. They just don't want to. And I think that's got to be a choice for every band or producer. You know, like, is this something you want to try to do on our own? And if so, are we capable of doing it? Do we have time to do it? And let's push that as far as we can. I think Palais Royale are a perfect example of what you're talking about, right? They're three very smart young men that have a very good grasp of the music industry. They can do anything that they're asking other people to do. They've been their own self-managers in between management companies. They've booked their own shows when they don't feel that other people are doing it. They promote the hell out of their own shows. They also have a comic book. They're artists. They have a makeup brand. They do all of these things that they've by and large done themselves But what they really do best is write amazing music. And that's what they need to be focused on. And that's why they need a big team of people around them to pick up all the things that they don't need to be spending their time doing. They can book a tour as well as I can book a tour. Actually, I shouldn't say that because they'll get ideas. But they could book a tour as well as I can. But technically, yeah, I'm sure if they put their heads to it, they could. But it takes up all the time in my day. I bust my ass for 12 hours a day, six days a week. This is what you do. Yeah, yeah. You're not also trying to write a record. Thank God. Yeah, no kidding. Well, and the other thing is, you know, part of going back to like why I or you are part of a bigger collective than just doing this ourselves. I also, I'm not good at everything. There's so many fucking things that I... I'm just god-awful at 40 years old. I'll never be good at it, and I don't want to. It's It's gone too far. So instead, I just pair up with people that are better at that. You know, take David Roscoe, who you've met. That kid, he... I say kid, he's a grown man. But he has just completely balanced me out now. He just picks up all the pieces that I fucking suck at. Right. We'll do kind of a, a state of the union of the music industry. It's something I ask everyone as we kind of wind this down. And I want you to kind of dig in, because obviously you wouldn't be doing this if you didn't have a positive outlook on things. But how has the industry changed over the years? You've been doing this for a minute. How has it changed to from then till now? Are you hopeful moving forward? And also some con- constructive criticism. What do you think we as an industry can be better at? Wow, it's a big question. It uh, is a big yes, question. Yes, I'm positive and hopeful for the future. Absolutely. I'm excited about it. If I wasn't, then I should get the fuck out of here, frankly. There's too much negativity in this world. Go away. 
It's really exciting. It's always been an exciting industry because it's always been subject to change, whether that's the, the music that people listen to, the culture that's associated with that music, the dress, the community that pops up around it, whether you're a festival goer or somebody that just likes to be the lone wolf sneaking into the back of an auditorium. Um, the way we listen to music has changed. We consume it now, which we maybe we consumed albums back in the late 90s, right? I used to lie on my bed and put on a record and listen to it from start to finish. I'd read the liner notes. I'd want to know every lyric, every every possible thing about that record, right? We don't do that now. I go on Spotify. I'll put in a song that's stuck in my head and I want to hear, and all of a sudden the algorithm takes over and it's churning out all of this other music that I haven't heard before. And I'm suddenly on a journey of discovery that I didn't know I needed to be on at that moment. And I think there's something utterly magical about that, right? I'm 40 years old. I'm not going to every club, every show. I go to bed at 9 p.m. I'm not coming to the whiskey at 11.30 on a Wednesday to see who else happens to be playing that I might like. Um, I used to, but those were the days. So I think there's a lot of positivity and a lot to be excited about. Who knows what it's going to look like in five, 10 years from now? I think a lot of things haven't changed. I think it's still about community and it's about people and it's about humanity. And I think that um, there's a lot of opportunity that perhaps wasn't there 25 years ago. You're no longer beholden to the gatekeepers of the record label or the radio gatewall. We all know that gatekeepers at radio still exist, but because we have internet radio and Spotify and playlists and all the good stuff, you can go around them. Yeah. So I think it's harder in a lot of ways for, for artists because you have to really stand head and shoulders above everybody else and not only engage with that audience in that one moment, but keep them engaged for the next song and the next video and the next reel. Right. And that's the harder bit to figure out is how do you keep the engagement once you have it? I don't know if that really answers your question. No, absolutely. It, it 100% does. I think there's a lot there. I mean, I, that's kind of a common answer is like there's less gatekeepers than ever. But because of that, it's I, I liken it to like when you sit down at the end of the, the day and you want to watch something on one of the gazillion streaming apps we all have. And you're looking through Netflix and HBO and fucking Hulu and whatever else you have. And you're like, I don't even know where to begin. There are so many options. I can't even fucking decide. The amount of people are like, you should watch this show. Dude, have you watched Better Call Saul? Have you watched fucking Sopranos? Like, there are so many shows and movies to choose from that sometimes I'm just paralyzed with options. Speaking my language, I'm sorry. I'm sat here laughing because I'm like, I recognize this. When I was a kid, yeah. I used to absolutely detest my stepfather flicking through. He'd be like, oh, I'm just going to have a flick. Flick through all the channels until he found something he wanted to watch. And it was exhausting. exhausting. And I feel like that just turning my telly And that's just on, cable. I can't do it. I don't no. watch TV subsequently. If people tell me that there's a good show, I'll put it on a list that I then usually lose or forget to look at. Exactly. Now, my wife and I have a very strict whose turn is it rule, because if you want to stay married, you have to do that. Like tonight is Ashley's pick. I don't get to say a fucking word about it. She gets to put on whatever the fuck she wants and I have to shut the fuck up. It's probably going to be a horror movie knowing her, but that's how it goes. That and sounds then, totally fair to me. Then tomorrow it's my pick and she can't say a goddamn thing about it. Uh, but there's so I think there's something there's a parallel to our industry as we move forward. It's like, 
okay, well, there's less gatekeepers, but now they're, now it's all on you. You have every resource available to you to make a record, to put out a record, to distri- distribute a record, to, to tour, to, all, all of it's there for you. And so now it's up to the artist, and not just the artist, it's up to you and I. It's up to this side of the industry. It's the same for us. Like doing stateside management, a producer management company, which is a very niche thing anyway, would have been much, much harder for me to do in the 70s or 80s or shit, even the 90s, pre-internet. Like I would have had to have basically grown up in Los Los Angeles and (laughs) interned for fucking 10 years and, you know, someone's shitty assistant, like... I I am very fortunate that I I got to found I founded a company from a coffee shop on a laptop. You know, like that's the dream. But now it's up to me. How very Portland of you. Very very incredibly Portland of me. This has been very delightful. If you want people to find you Bex and that's totally up to you. Where can they find you? Where can they reach out to you? Even if it's just your email. Uh, I'm usually on Instagram at Agent Bex. I lurk in the background. I see it sometimes. I do not tend to post, mostly because I don't have an awful lot to post about. Otherwise, you can usually find me at my house because I don't tend to stray very far. (laughs) You do travel a lot, though. Most agents travel a lot. I travel back to the UK a lot. I go other places, too. But I do go back to the UK. I'm learning to love the UK again. Good. That said, good. I did a thing, yeah. James. I did a thing yesterday on July the 5th. I became a US citizen. Did you really? Yeah. Oh my God. Congratulations, they gave me a flag. Bex. That is incredible. That is huge news. Good for you. Thanks. Oh my God. But you know what they also incredible. did that I didn't know they were going to do? They took my green card away. So now I don't have a passport. So now I can't travel. So now I'm stuck here. So now you have to go get the passport thing sorted out. Welcome to being a citizen. (laughs) Thanks very much. Oh, that's incredible. Congratulations. And right around July 4th, I think that's very serendipitous. As soon as I got the email that said your appointment's on July 5th, I'm like, that's a good sign. That's perfect. Well, I turned 40 on July 4th. I'm a little Yankee Doodle Dandy. That's even better. So all the fireworks were for you. That's right. As you see, there's an American flag in the background. I have noticed that. I did clock (laughs) it early on. Okay. Well, I think we did it. I think we covered it. Well, thanks for being on. This was super fun. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.